I'm Siham Cyrene, and you are here for Better Conversations. One day I was like, I need to talk to this trans person I, I know, like I see all the time, like I need to know who they are. And did that, and it happened to be a very lovely conversation. And what that triggered was like, okay, so a trans person is a person, first of all. She's not a creature the way I imagined her to be, or she's not a danger, she's not the scary thing. She's just a human being who happens to be super interesting, lovely, etc. I think that lasted for like two years before I dared talk to her. And I feel like fear somehow tells you more about what who you are and who you should be than the plans or the projections you might have into the future somehow. While we're gifted with speech, conversations, really good conversations, don't happen as much as we'd like. In this podcast, my guest and I deep dive into all the corners of what makes a conversation awkward and uncomfortable or warming and memorable. One of the toughest times to have conversations is when we're facing our fears. And if we can get to the other side, I'm optimistic that there is much joy waiting for us. I'm in deep conversation with Hasby, a Swiss-Albanian queer artist and curator of festivals. This is a very personal conversation because they're sharing their own journey of becoming non-binary and the important role that conversations have had for them since they were a teenager. Not just about sexuality, but about identity and belonging about the queer festivals they organise, the challenge or gift of being mildly autistic, and about finding humanity and spiritual connections. And it seems to always be emerging themselves and to be promoting inclusion, diversity and rights for social minorities at the same time as challenging social conventions. When Hasby talks about being body positive, they talk about creativity with the body, diversity of looks, the spaces that create safety and allow others to immediately open up and talk about very intimate aspects of their sexuality. Being non-binary, they are very flexible in how they dress. They're flamboyant and rich in imagery, and sometimes it has taken them a great deal of courage and strong will to dress how they feel, because often people do stare at them or can be aggressive or violent towards them because they represent difference or because their difference is perceived as dangerous. They said something very poignant to me about how much self-alienation we put ourselves through in order to be accepted and they describe the morning rush in Zurich of bankers heading to their offices as an example, but also how people can surprise us like when they told their boss that a professorship at the University of St. Gallen wasn't for them. I 
I think the most important point, the how I know that when I have a conversation that it's part of the better ones is that it's that I enjoy myself and that the other person does too. One of the things that I'm really, really scared of in conversations and that I try to avoid is to have power relations um, that get into that. I really like to have conversations with people that feel that they're on an equal level, that each can disclose as much information as they would want to, that each feels as comfortable as they uh, would want to, and that it's really a somehow like a one-to-one equal conversation. And one really important part to me also is if all the people engaged in the conversation are feel comfortable enough to be authentic or to talk about intimate matters, because I don't like, let's say, mundane talks, even though that is um, that might be useful depending on the situations. But what I really like is to really get to know the other person if I know the other person, I would like to learn more about them. And very often I feel like it's somehow like a discussion between psychologists. And I really like that because I can really get into the other person's feelings, uh, fears, desires, etc. And I think that's the best material that we have to make a conversation interesting. And also, I think these are the most important matters in life, like how you feel, what you want, what you want to do, what you aspire to, etc. So as long as two people equally share about that, I think that's a good conversation to me. Hmm. Yeah. So Hansby, tell me, who are the people that you work with or that you need to influence? So I've worked for two queer and sex positive festivals and uh, for a sex positive magazine. Sex positive being that you regard sexuality, that you look at sexualities in a positive way and that you don't judge as long as they're like, basically you can get creative with your sexuality, any desire you might want to have as long as you do it with consent. The people I usually talk to are people who question their sexualities or lack of. And the thing is that nowadays um, in our society, sexuality is often regarded as sex between a man and a woman. And mostly through like the lens of reproduction, let's say. So some practices are regarded as um, disgusting um, because they don't lead to reproduction. Sometimes it happens like, yes, most people who regard sex negatively would also have like uh, homophobic or transphobic views. So um, in those festivals, usually I see people who want to be, who want to live their sexuality in a different way, in a more liberated and creative way. And these people are going to be like the audience. So the people who question themselves and want to come to these festivals to find a safe space or like-minded people to talk to about their sexualities. The artists that attend the festivals, porn performers, because we also screen a lot of alternative porn movies, um, which depict like different ways of having sex uh, compared to what you can find on the main tube sites uh, that are for free on the internet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's generally, let's say, all the weird people that do not have a platform to talk about sex uh, in their daily life, let's say. And um, what's important about some of the conversations that you like to or want to have with them? I think there are two things here. First, I would say safety is really important because 
most of the people who come to the festivals, they know that they can talk about sex, how they feel about certain sex practices, but they need to feel safe. So they need to feel that I won't go around and like tell everyone what they would tell me. They should also feel that there's no judgment from my side as well. So that's one really, really important part because what I realized is that most of these people would come to the festivals and have their first discussion, like genuine discussion about sex at the festival. So they wouldn't even talk about it with their friends or with their counselors or etc. So it's a topic that requires a lot of self-disclosure, let's say. And people really need to feel that it's a safe space. So being non-judgmental and the other thing is not being scared of being intimate. So what I would usually do is disclose myself some information and uh, even though I don't know the people, but if they tell me about something or I don't know what they're scared of uh, with their sexual partners, I would be like, oh, I know that too. I'm scared sometimes because of this and that and that. And then they, I think that makes them realize that I'm not just like the organizer of these festivals. I mean, one of the organizers, but also that I'm a human being and that I'm not the experts in sex, let's say, but that I also have my questions, doubts, um, desires, and and so on. So the really important thing is to make it a human conversation. And what is crazy is that sometimes it's so many people actually disclose so much information about themselves that they feel that we have some kind of instant and really intense bond. So whenever I would see them after that, they would just pick up the conversation that we had during the festival. So they would still be feel safe, they would still be interested in having that discussion. And what that makes me think is that if you talk to people about certain things that they usually don't talk to, and you make them feel safe about it, it feels like it's actually going to last a lifetime where people never forget about it. So very often when I when I go out, people is, always use me as their sex therapist somehow, which feels weird depending on which event I'm attending. So yeah. I thought it was interesting you saying that they can open up to you more than they might to their counselor or their therapist. And you talked a little bit about that being around judgment. Mm-hmm. Why do you think we find it hard to talk about our sexuality? I think it has a lot to do with education and probably religion, I think. Sex has always been described or seen as something necessary, but something we should avoid or something that's dirty or we never really have those kind of conversations, at least in Switzerland, where I'm from. The only institutional conversations you have about sex is some sex education classes that you have in primary school, but that's two hours or four somehow in total. So we never talk about it, but yet we like it uh, somehow. So it creates kind of this taboo, I think, just like with drugs, people don't feel comfortable talking about it. And that's also, I think, like there are many things that could explain that. But once you go past that religious belief or that religious view of sex as something negative that should be controlled, but that you can actually explore and be creative with, it's still a very intimate discussion because you talk about your body, you talk about interactions you have with other people. And the other thing is that most of the time we also feel bad talking about sex because the only access we have to sex is through through porn. And porn usually does not depict reality. It's fictional, um, let's say. 
So people always feel like there's some distance or a mismatch between how they experience sex and how they think the world experiences sex through porn. So they're always scared of saying, okay, probably I'm not good enough or I cannot do that. So probably I'm weird or I'm a weak person or I have weird desires, etc. So it's never an easy conversation to have. And I think I've recently thought about it. The only thing that we talk about, when, when we talk about our bodies, the only thing we say is how bad we feel in our bodies, how fat we feel, how hairy we feel, etc. But we never talk about the good things about our bodies, what we can do with them, especially if we are abled people. So the body is always regarded as something negative, or we talk about it in a very negative way. But then in sex, the body becomes positive. So people are not used to that. They're not totally comfortable with it, but it's a thing that you can learn and I've learned it. So this is why to me, it's very easy to have a conversation about sex because I think I've overcome the religious beliefs that were ingrained in me and I feel at ease with my body, how it looks and what I can do with it and what I cannot. So talking about sex is yeah, really, really easy for me. And do you think that the journey that you have been on, the fact that you open up about things that typically are not openly talked about. And I'm assuming also given the context of the festivals as well means that, you know, the context is set is this is what we're here for. That means because people are experiencing or hearing where you're at in your journey, they feel they can share much more easily or express where they're at in their journey. Mm -hmm. So the thing that happens when you go to those festivals is that you might attend you might go watch a movie, you might attend a, a performance. and But in any case, all of anything that you might see would be about sex or your body. So you're already into that kind of mindset of listening to something about uh, your body and sexualities and um, thinking about it. And most of the conversations would happen during breaks uh, after the performances or movies and just people smoking cigarettes and just talking to each other. And very often the discussion would be triggered. Oh, that's super funny. The, the performances would be used as an alibi, let's say. So I would, people would usually say like, what did you think about that performance? And you could like easily answer, oh yeah, it made me think about how I feel about this and that. And then people would usually self-disclose a lot of information. So that's one part. The other part I think is just um, yeah, the energy that is in those festivals and how people look. Because let's be honest, people look very different to what you can see uh, on the streets. So even visually, you can see that people are a lot more diverse and a lot more free to express themselves. So you kind of feel like this hippie vibe. We, we really describe it like that. We, we feel like we're hippies, actually. So can you describe a little bit more what I might expect? So it would be people who are what we can call like cross-dressing. So people who dress not according to one gender, but you can see like a person who looks like a man, but is wearing a skirt or uh, the other way around, people with um, huge platforms. I think, yeah, it's you can really see some styles that you would never see elsewhere. Or there's a big concentration, like a big density of that uh, at the festivals. And I never thought that that would play a big part um, at the festivals. But I realized it was really linked to that. Because a funny thing is that whenever people come to my apartment, it's crazy how easily they would talk about their fears and like really intimate matters. 
And one day I asked, like, I started asking people why they would feel so free. And two of them actually said that when they got into the flat, it's decorated in such a weird and barocco, let's say, way that they don't feel judged. Like they apparently the apartment is so intense and so visually diverse and creative that they feel like it's a safe space. Okay, I'm not going to be judged by a person who has this kind of taste or who puts that on their walls. or And that's the same dynamic, I think, at the festivals. Like when you see people who are completely different to each other, then you don't feel the pressure to to be like them, to conform somehow. So you feel like anyone can be whoever they want. And that makes people feel free, I guess. And I hope. Yeah, they, they do seem to be really strongly linked, don't they? Um, this sort of visual expression of of whatever feels right, and there are no there are no rules. In fact, you're breaking lots of rules, um, and then that tied in with sexuality. Do you think there's a it's part of the conversation or part of the expression of of how we look or how we can allow ourselves to imagine or to want to be or feel? Um, is connected to either the space that we're in or the conversation that we want to have. I do think so, yeah. Probably I can talk about like how I, how people would perceive me. So usually I'm non-binary, so that means that I don't feel like a man or I don't feel like a woman. I don't go by the social conventions of either men or women. So if one day I want to wear a dress... I will wake up and just wear a dress. I won't be thinking, oh no, uh, I was born a man and men don't wear dresses, so uh, I should not. And so that's how I express my gender or my genders, let's say. And I think people understand and know that that requires quite a lot of, that that's a long process. It doesn't just happen like all of a sudden. It's really a process where you question yourself, you free yourself from social conventions. I mean, it requires quite some effort, some time and some courage to go out on the streets with high heels and a skirt, especially if you have to go to some institutions, some professional institutions where you will be expected to look in a certain way. But if you do that, even in those spaces, then I think that shows quite some freedom, quite some a will to express oneself. And that's what I usually do. And I think when you see like gathering of people who all do that, even though they don't have to necessarily, but if you see quite a critical mass of people dress in the way they want to, I think it really shows that um, it's a creative space and that you should only listen to what you would want to do as long as you're not hurting anyone else. Generally at those festivals, it really has to do a lot with gender so gender norms, um, you would see like, I don't know, I'm trying to picture like, but it's trying to picture all the people I've seen at those festivals, but they all look so different that it's difficult to describe everyone. But in general, I would say that. Um, well, it's almost like you can't. And isn't that the point is that we can't as much as we want to and, and we're trained to create generalizations and to create descriptions that kind of present a, a concept, what a singular concept or a homogenous idea. Um, the point is that your festivals are not about that. Exactly. Yeah. And while we were talking, it made me realize actually, probably one should think of how many times they've been in situations where they would see people of all ethnic backgrounds 
abled, disabled people, uh, tall, short, slim, fat, gendered, non-gendered, people in suits, people in underwear. It's, it's just crazy the amount of diversity there is there. And this diversity, it, that's probably what makes it difficult to describe it. But I think you can really sense it when you come because you feel like everyone is welcome somehow. So present yourself the way you want to. That doesn't matter. What really matters is if you are sex positive, let's say, if you have like a positive view of sexuality and if you're ready to give people some space, some interest and not overstep their boundaries, let's say, but that doesn't happen um, very often. But yeah, I think visually, like when you come to these festivals, it's like really, oh, wow, there's a bunch of different people I've never seen. And you can definitely tell that it's not the way we look that brings us together. Because like fashion has always had that kind of role to bring people together. So some groups of people would dress pretty similarly. But at this these festivals, people really don't. So it's one of the most open spaces I've ever, ever been to. And I think that's what can be sensed in in those moments. As you were talking there, the, the word that popped into my head was tribal. I mean, when we go to work and we're in suits, conventional suits and so on, we are conforming and we are wearing what our tribe wears. When we're teenagers, we wear the fashion, you know, that that uh, our friends enjoy or um, that um, somehow on our, our bands or, you know, people that we look up to. Um, but what you're saying is this is less about other and more about oneself. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, it's always scary. Like, I think to me, the the way I see life, and that's very absurd, it's, um, I feel like it's a play somehow, and everyone can play the role they want, or the role they have to play. Like, until two months ago, I was living uh, in Zurich in the banking neighborhood. And it was crazy to me how every morning I would see this bunch of people in suits all go in the same direction from the train station to the um, to the banks to to their offices all having the same uh clothes all walking the same way all having the same level of stress yeah talking on the phone already before coming to the office and i would really look at them as if it were a play like okay i'm seeing like a movie about bankers going to their offices but it's for free and it's live and it really had me think of sometimes how much we go through self-alienation just to be accepted in some kind of environment, which seems like pretty straightforward and like a given, but it's really weird to me, especially when I remember one time like signing this working contract and where it was uh, clearly stated how I should dress. And that was one of the things that I negotiated because I felt like it was, I was about to give up my identity and to give it to the company I would work for, to the organization I would work for. And that's something I would never do. So we signed these um, these contracts. We already implicitly like try to dress like other people just to say like, okay, I belong. I belong here. I don't want to be a visual surprise to you. I don't want you to read like my personality through through what I'm wearing. Like right now, I'm playing the role of a, a worker, uh, and I hope you can see that through the way I'm dressed. And through the way I behave. And that's, to me, that's really, really scary. It's because I feel like we end up being robots somehow. And that social conventions 
what yeah society expects from us in different situations. It's just like the algorithms of life. Um, let's say if you're at a wedding, you should behave this way, you should dress this way. And that like the social convention is the algorithm. And it will tell you what you are going to do, how, what you're going to wear, how you are going to prepare, what you're going to say. Same at work. I feel like everything is so coded, so standardized that I'm not even that scared or impressed by all this narrative about will the, will like, artificial intelligence replace us all or what will it do to us? And I'm like, we're already in there. We're just replacing social conventions by algorithms, but at least these are explicit and we can talk about those. So, and yeah, that removes like a big layer of humanity from people, I feel. And that's, I think that that's really, really scary to me. And it's definitely situations I try to avoid or I try to face, but challenge at the same time uh and sometimes it does work very often it does work like you i feel like you can bring back your humanity into let's say socially coded or standardized situations and the way that usually happens is right now i have a lot of work to do with institutions in my town and i think uh like from the very beginning from the very first interaction i tried to tell them to show them that I'm a human person, that I might be in a bad mood because something happened before. Um, I'm not obliged to go there being like all smiley and being all happy and super excited to see people I don't know. So I really tell people how I am. They see that they, they can definitely see that um, I didn't go there, the outfits that they would expect me to. So they see that I'm totally myself. And very often what would happen is that if I make that a personal experience instead of an institutional one, very often people would respond in the same way. Either ask me why I'm doing, like why I'm not feeling good or like the, the conversation would become like human right away. It would not be, okay, let's follow the procedure and let's do like the professional exchanges and interactions we have to do and which are very, very coded. So I think that's possible. We can get out of our social roles and design our own one, but it's not what we're taught. So it's difficult to do. No, it's certainly not what we're taught. And I think you, you talk to it in you have started setting the tone of conversations the way you want to have them. And that sounds like a, a really great example of one where you're avoiding the small talk and actually just expressing exactly where you are. And it sounds like the closeness that people feel or that bond that people end up feeling in a very short space of time is because you are being human. I think so. But what I also do think is probably a lot of people don't want to have that human connection because it might be scary or they might not be used to it. So it would be very intimate. So it's not easy to handle. You have to analyze your emotions to analyze the emotions of the other person in front of you. Uh, you have to make it interesting. You have to make it safe. So there are a lot of conditions that need to be met to make it a human com conversation or interaction, let's say. But to me, that's really important because I feel that and most of the things we do, there's a lack of spiritual connection. Even when we do our groceries, I feel like the way people talk to the cashiers is, is, I don't know, it's, there's a lack of emotions. There's a lack of humanity. They talk to the staff there as if they were machines. And that's slowly happening with all the, the cash, uh, the automatic cashiers that we have now. And I feel like people are just comfortable with the minimum of transmitting information, just exchanging the, the, the required information to do what they have to do together 
to me, that's so pointless because even if I do my groceries, I would like to have like a human conversation with a well, with a staff who's there because they are human. And very often when I talk to some of my friends who work in supermarkets, what would make their day would be like a client who is um, super nice, smiley, etc. So I think these are very, very important. And personally, I hardly ever have any neutral feelings, let's say, about people. And I'm amazed at how people can have such neutral feelings about others. Can you say a bit more about that? No matter the situation, no matter the person I'm talking to, I would have some sympathy or how to put it in a nice way, some distance towards that person. I don't know. It's probably my way of relating to society, but... Um, when I see a person, I can easily sense their emotions. I can easily see what makes them an interesting person. I can easily sense that the other person might want to be in a funny kind of vibe. So jokes would be more than welcome. I really cannot see people as just interfaces, let's say. I can I, I really see what's happening in them or I try to to guess what's happening in their minds and hearts. And on the other side, I would have some distance if what the other person does, says, or seems to think is, I don't know, racist, homophobic, transphobic, uh, sexist. So if I know that the other person will invalidate or already invalidates my existence just because I'm different. And these are the kind of people that I try to, to stay away from. And in like, let's say in the, in worst cases, I think, yeah, I would, I would try to challenge them or to make them reconsider their opinions. But in any case, when there is like some distance between me and the other person, I would really try to cut short to tell them that I do not wish to have that conversation with them because I don't know I'm just not interested in having a conversation with someone um, who has those views like and is a bigot, let's say. And on the other side, if I feel some sympathy for the other person, it's very easy for me to to bond, even though it's a complete stranger on the streets who was just asking me for a light, for example. And that makes life way more interesting. It mm. makes life full of surprises. Um, you never know how a conversation is going to happen. And that's one really important thing that I realized about interactions is that I think it still is the most fascinating thing to me, the interacting with people, because since I'm very open to having unscripted or unconventional interactions, I feel that that opens the way to a creative, uh, impactful, intense interaction that you can never, never, ever predict. And I think that makes, like, I think life in general is a surprise. Like I know that tomorrow probably I will meet someone will have a main meaningful impact on my life for a while but I don't know where I don't know who will uh, I don't know if I will know that person or not and that just makes life super exciting because it's like it's always different it's always emerging there's anyway always something good that is going to come out of that um, yeah does that add a richness to who you are that's a very good question I don't know if it's richness, but at least it makes life less boring. Because I mean, I know myself, whenever I go to bed, I have conversations with myself. I spend like 24-7. I'm like 24-7 with myself, so I'm not interested in having a conversation with myself. I think I'm, 
yeah, easily bored when I'm alone. Whereas with other people, I think it just leads to a lot of interactions. And now there are a lot of examples that are popping to my mind. But four weeks ago, I did a performance and I met a person there who was just congratulating me for the performance that I was doing. And later on, I met her in the town I, were, uh, I live in, which I didn't know she lived in here. Like we said hi. And I think at that point, the conversation could have gone like two ways. So the conventional way either to just say hi and have like some chit chat and mundane talk or the way we did it's like a super intimate conversation about how we we're feeling, about how she was feeling bad about her son and her life in general. So what I said was like, let's have drinks tonight. Like I'm not letting this conversation go this way. And we had drinks and we've been seeing each other like twice a week now. And I met an incredibly creative, weird person that I think I would not have. Like if I let the first conversation go in the very traditional way, I think these kind of interactions would not have happened. Um, it's so implicit or ingrained in my life that it's kind of hard to realize how much that adds to my life. It's just the way I live it. But I think that's the best way I can live, at least for me. So I'm not saying that everyone should do that, but I know that if you're an extrovert or like to be surrounded by people, I think if you have like intimate human conversations, that helps a lot. Now that hasn't necessarily been the case that you've been that when you meet someone, you're actually tuned into where they're at and you're willing to open up and be vulnerable yourself to them. You said that um, you were diagnosed as a child with mild autism. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, so when I was six or seven, I was diagnosed um, as a gifted person. And I remember there was um, this note uh, on the diagnose that said, could also have like a mild uh, autism. And I never really paid attention to what that meant when I was a child. I only paid attention to that when life changed when I was 23. And I met someone who would totally change my perspective on social life. So I remember when I was a kid or a teenager, I would have a hard time reading people's emotions. I would not be able to relate to them. If someone was mad at me, I would not even think that that is because of me. I really, I was like completely disconnected. It was my brain and my body and I, and that, that was it. But weirdly enough, I still had some friends, like quite a lot of friends, but I'm still like, some of them are still close friends. And I asked them like why they were around me at the time, because I must have been a horrible person to be around, like not paying attention to what they want, not paying attention to how I could have hurt them, etc. So I really felt that there was like a wall or like the bond between me and people was inexistent. And then when I was 23, I met um, a friend who I like to consider as my spiritual mother. And she was working with uh, autistic children when we met. And the way she would talk, everything she would say would be so fascinating to me um, because I had never seen that. She would see symbols and signs in like everyday life. If there's, I don't know, um, what was the example the other time? Oh yeah, like just walking in a park and seeing some kind of garbage uh, in the park and she would read what's on the garbage. And if that reminds her of someone like, I don't know, if 
if it's like a bag of crisps that someone really likes, she would be like, oh yeah, the universe like is telling me to contact that person again. So it was really like a way of thinking and talking that I had never seen. And after two years of spending a lot of time with her, um, or one year, I cried for the first time. I express, I think that was the first time I expressed my emotions. It was after a performance and it really resonated with my life and my family. And I cried in her arms and she was just telling me that that was going to be all right. And I think at that moment, I realized that having emotions, showing them even when you're surrounded with people is completely okay. And so I started this whole process of growing up and trying to connect to people. But of course, I had to do it from one extreme to the other where I got at some point in my life to the point where I was bonding way too much with people or way too intensively. Because um, I did my PhD on uh, in psycholinguistics and that helped quite a lot to understand the cues in conversation that show interest or that the other person is following the conversation or that they want to say something so um, you should let them talk. That helped quite a lot. But then I feel like with any discovery in your life, that became quite an obsession. So I was analyzing every conversation I was having with everyone, which I feel helped me become good at having conversations somehow. But it was way too much because I could not see, I could not have any emotional distance to other people. So that was, I think I got to the point where I was over empathizing with people and that was quite too much to take but now trying to learn to find the right balance but it's an ongoing process so I don't know when that's going to come or when it will be satisfactory but I can definitely tell that um, I'm way more yeah I have way more distance with conversations than what I used to have before when I after I did my PhD and yeah in general I think Going from one extreme to the other allowed me to see, I think, both ends of the spectrum of how you can perceive interactions with humans. So going from nothing, it was really the void uh, when I was a child, to being over-empathetic, over-connected to other people. And seeing both sides made me realize that I do really not want to be back into the social distance that I had when before I met my spiritual mother. And that life is way more interesting when you connect to, to people. And what I do keep from my years as a, I don't know how to say, like, like my early years as an autistic person is that I was so disconnected from other people that I think I didn't perceive the power or the usefulness of social conventions. Um, so that helped me become the person I was without giving, like, without considering others because I simply couldn't bond with anyone. So I would just see, like, I wouldn't see humans. I would see puppets somehow that would move. So I never felt that kind of social pressure to be someone. Um, I was always following my inner voice, let's say. So I'm thankful for that, but I'm mostly thankful for having met uh, my spiritual mother. Otherwise, I think it would. I wouldn't be, the, I wouldn't be here. I don't know. It's, I don't know how it would be. Like I would probably be one of those robots that I'm disgusted by now. Right. I'm wondering, are there parallels between the way you describe people going to work in the morning and conforming in that way and whether that didn't make sense to you or didn't have an appeal for you 
to such an extent that actually who you are and how you express yourself now feels more genuine, more more unconventional in a way that I don't even know if it's if it's a courage or it's just a drive, a sort of deep drive that you have um, for being expressive. This is a conversation I have quite often with my friends who are in a similar position. We don't feel like we're brave or that going out on the streets and being who we are requires some courage. I think it's, as you said, some deep drive or it just feels natural. I don't know. It's, I cannot explain it. Courage will come into play if I know that I will be in some situations or in some places where things might be a bit more dangerous if I dress in a certain way. But that's about it. Like the the overall gender and personality expression would just feel completely natural to me. And it really had me thinking of something because going back to the people who attend the festivals that I work for, I feel like most of the people I see are neuroatypical. So they have like some kind of some sort of way of thinking and talking that is might come across as weird or different or interesting in best cases. But in any case, I feel like everyone is has like their own weirdness or yeah, they're all awkward in their own way. And it really had me think of whether there are, if this does not show that there are like two or more kinds of people where the neuroatypical one would just want to be themselves and they would not care about social conventions as much as other people. And probably what drives the other people, like neurotypical people, let's say, would probably be the need to fit in, um, the need to belong, the need to do something that is socially approved, the need to do something that would not surprise other people, that would not be seen as weird. I think that's that could explain like the play that some people like to play a role. Some people like to be told what to do. Some people are, mm-hmm. feel super comfortable knowing that their life will be about having a good job, going to college, marrying someone, having kids, a house. And so happiness would already be scripted. And that brings, at least to some of my friends who are like that, that would bring them a lot of comfort um, because they would know what to do, um, mm-hmm. which... And I feel like it, with my friends and I and all the neuroatypical people I hang out with, we're scared of knowing things in advance and we like surprises and we like emergence and we like creativity. So probably there are like two types of people there and not trying to have like a normative judgment on that, but I know which side I'm on. So, and it feels good to know where, like where I am, let's say. Where you want to be. Oh, exactly, yeah. yeah. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. Better conversations. We all want to have them at work. Have you ever felt dread about an upcoming chat with a colleague you needed to have or had that sinking feeling when that meeting didn't go as well as you hoped? When we can provide a safe space in conversation, the other person feels able to open up without fear. As leaders, Part of helping our team do their job effectively is to motivate and guide our people to deliver on their goals. And when we have successful conversations, we become more influential, encourage deeper collaborations and foster true connection at work. 
Did you know it's the number one skill that sets the top leaders apart from the rest? That's why we've created a 12-week online course hosted by executive coach Seherm Cyrene, helping you to navigate those tough conversations with skill and compassion. Enroll today at leaderswhocoach.today. What's the best conversation you've ever had, Husby? Hmm. It's very difficult to say because I feel like I always... I've come to a point where I only have interesting conversations, like all of the conversations with my friends, like when we try to talk about who we are, our identity, what we want to do as a group, all these super, super intimate conversations are, are among the best ones, but it's a collection. It happens all the time. So um, it's a flow of best conversations, let's say. But there is one conversation that still sticks with me is, so I was doing a postdoc at um, the University uh, of St. Gaudin and um, I quit my job um, a few months ago. Um, so it's very, very recent. I was kind of scared of the conversation where I would tell um, my former manager that I wanted to quit. And for a whole week, I was thinking, like, how can I say that? How, like, what can I talk about? What should I say? Which tone should I use? How much self-disclosure should I go for? And in the end, I just told myself, do it as you would do it with a friend. So we started the conversation and it was supposed to be a conversation about the future year, like planning in advance what I would do. And... I immediately started the conversation with saying, I'm going to say something super surprising to you, but I'm going to quit my job. And I gave him all the reasons which were health related, family related. I don't want to live in the city I, I lived in anymore. Um, I was having bad relationships back then. So I really needed some kind of like a different twist, a different spin in my life. And that the best reaction, I think, was when I said what I wanted to do after this job. And I said that I wanted to focus on queer people, trying to help queer people. Um, so people who are like like me, who are struggling with, with our identity and sexualities. Because when I was doing my postdoc, it was most, I was mostly working with like bankers or people who are already well off, let's say. And the reaction of my manager, which I didn't expect, was very human. Um, he said he was, he totally couldn't understand where I was coming from and that he was super surprised of the bravery that that decision required because I could have an easy life as a professor at the University of St. Gallen, which is most likely true. But he really understood all the constraints I had, what I wanted to change in my life. And what he did was, I'm so amazed by your decision that let me know if there is any way I can help you. And he helped me quite a lot uh, after that discussion. And which really shows how genuine his reaction was, because once you're done with an employee, you're basically done. I think you don't have any interest in continuing some kind of relationship with other people unless it's a good relationship. And that's what happened. So it was really, really astonishing, especially considering that the manager is not in the queer sex positive environment. So he knows what LGBT means, but doesn't know what are the struggles in the LGBT communities. 
So I was really surprised how much he could get and understand what I was saying and how much it meant to me, even though he's like from a completely different world. And that's really made me think of how we can, I think, if we are somewhat totally honest with ourselves and with other people, how we could probably get any message across, I feel. So that was the the biggest surprise. And I think that's the best conversation to me, even though it was really, really stressful. It was not an easy decision, high stakes. So he surprised you. He did. He did. I surprised him. He surprised me. So I guess the whole thing was a big, <laughs> big surprise. Um, and we're still in touch. And uh, I think I really admire people who can understand struggles from other communities, other people, and just be supportive of them. And I'm glad that I get to meet people who are so genuinely well-minded and benevolent, um, because I feel like that's getting rare now. Um, It's certainly precious, and it takes bravery on their part, right? Uh, Or a sense of uh, integrity about who they are and how they're showing up. But um, yeah, the ability to be able to advocate for others, I think, is something we need more of um, and um, find ways to be comfortable with it. Because I I genuinely feel, uh, even if I reflect on myself, there are times when I have an internal voice that um, wants to help, but I, for whatever reason, might talk myself out of it and not do anything. And it can be as simple as, you know, being in a waiting room uh, at a clinic, right? And seeing someone could use some assistance or a friendly voice. How often do we actually go up and uh, uh, and put them at ease in a situation they clearly are finding very stressful? So the ability to do that, I think, is touches us at a very deep level. Mm-hmm. It really does. And I think what always surprises me is when people... Because even in the situation that you just described, I feel you could have two reactions. It's either see the situation through the institutional lens and be like, okay, there are people here who are paid to take care of others. So it's not my job. It's not my duty. In the situation with my former manager, you could just have had the legal, let's say, conversation with me and just say the minimum and not care about it and give me the minimum advantages that I could get out of um, my quitting the job. Or you could go the other way, like see it as a human interaction. Like, okay, we are, there are no institutions between you and I. It's you and I. And that's probably what the inner voice or the little voice is trying to tell you. And I have that as well. I feel like it's, whenever I have it, I I follow it. It's like my instinct because it really tells me, okay, just, interact with that person directly instead of going through social conventions, institutions, name them however you want. In my case, I don't know, I would describe it as a kind of spiritual connection. It would be very, very difficult for me to see someone who needs help or, I don't know, is in a dangerous situation and not act or do something about it. The studies that scare me the most are those in psychology. I'm pretty sure you've read articles about that or even seeing like uh, footage of people who get beaten up on the streets and you see other people walking on the streets, just looking at the whole thing happening without doing anything or helping um, people out. And to me, that's just mm-hmm. crazy. I, I really don't understand that. And 
And yet the stories, the stories that we hear about or the videos that you see where someone did step in are incredibly inspiring. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know, we, we feed off that and we think, wow, that's so cool. How great. And yet would we, would we step in? Would we have done that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a complex reaction, um, I think, for some people is to kind of be in, both inspired by it, but also glad that I didn't, it wasn't me that had to do that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But don't you think it's, uh, that's the thing, as soon as you start seeing something as inspiring, it means that you're not there yet. Right. So like, I really, really like love my Facebook feeds now because I don't know, for some reason, it just shows me videos of heroes or sheroes of people who do things that are super positive. And what I really like is reading the comments about those videos. Like if someone saved a dolphin uh, who was on the shore of a beach and you have footage of that and people would be like, oh, that's so nice of that person, blah, blah. This is humanity. This is how we should live, etc. I think what the best part in that is really the comments. I'm like, but why does it surprise you? Why is it that groundbreaking? I mean, it, to me, it's it, it would feel so natural that it's kind of hard to understand the kind of the the sort of fascination that that triggers, mm. and it really shows about how much people would want to be what they would call good people or human, like humane, let's say, and. I would just be interested in knowing what keeps them from being that person that they admire. Well, I wonder whether you've already tapped into that in the way that the festivals give people the space and the place to be fully expressive of who they are. Actually, in that context, if it's about attending um, and making the first decision to actually go to a festival, if that's the hardest decision to make, then once you're there the connections are easy to make, then actually, would it take that much to trigger or to move into that space more easily? I guess, in other words, it's not, you don't have to scratch too deep to reach that in people or to make that possible. Hmm. Hmm. Very good question. I think there there might be a few things here. First, if I use the example of the festivals, people are usually scared to come and we even like two or three years ago i don't remember we even like made something out of it so we had we designed toad bags and it was written in french on that um on the toad bags and i've never been there because we would often hear oh i've heard about your festival but i've never been there or i've never dared to come because for multiple reasons people might think that it's just sex festival where uh, all that happens is just like sex between people and orgies. and But that's definitely not what is happening. And also, some are scared to publicly display that they are interested in uh, questioning sexualities or discovering new sexualities or sex practices, etc. So there's this level of being scared of doing something, of listening to what we want to do. And I still have that with a lot of things that I don't dare do. And once you're in there, I think what is really, really important is the environment. If you show people that they're welcome in that environment, that they're welcome in the situation, that they're not judged, it's very, very easy to get people to talk about what they, about, yeah, personal and intimate matters. 
and it doesn't really require much, but there are some obstacles, some constraints. Um, as I said, this distance or the fact that we're, we don't know something, so we might be scared about it. Um, and the second thing being the safe environment. But I feel mm. like if you have those two conditions met, then anything can happen. It's interesting because it's, you know, the first step sounds super scary, but the the experience itself is unforgettable. That's what we mean when we talk about being or stepping out of our own comfort zone. But very often I feel that what I'm scared of also shows that I'm interested in that somehow, that I'm already related to the thing I'm scared of. And this is what I had with trans and non-binary people when I was a teenager. I would just look at all the trans people who would go out clubbing and somehow would be scared but fascinated at the same time. Like, I, I really don't know. I had like a really, really weird feeling back then, but it was super intense. And once one day I was like, I need to talk to this trans person I, I know, like I see all the time, like I need to know who they are. And did that, and it happened to be a very lovely conversation. And what that triggered was like, okay, so a trans person is a person, first of all. Um, she's not a creature the way I imagined her to be, or she's not a danger, she's not the scary thing. She's just a human being who happens to be super interesting, lovely, etc. And, but... I think that lasted for like two years before I dared talk to her. And I feel like anytime, like, I, f I feel like fear somehow tells you more about who you are and who you should be than the plans or the projections you might have into the future somehow. But, and mm. the important thing there is to jump into that. But deciding when is the right time is quite difficult, I feel. Um, and this is why it's important to be open about their fears, like acknowledging them first yourself, then talking about them to other people if you feel comfortable enough. Once you feel ready, just going for that and diving into it and probably a, word, a, a, a world of wonders will, will happen just as it did with that trans person which then made me think about my own gender identity back in the days. So it really makes me think about like, is it courage? Is it, what is it? I don't know. I think we definitely do need some kind of courage or I don't know, lack of awareness somehow in, in our lives, like just to go with the flow and do things without overthinking them. Uh, I think we are from a young age, channeled down a path of convention from the way we're dressed, uh, going to school, you know, what subjects are you going to study, the way we even look at history, how much the education in our schooling systems actually um, explores diversity. And so everything points us in the direction of conforming um, and very hard to find a place, I think, when you you maybe don't want to conform, but you don't know, you know, where you want to be instead because there are no pointers uh, or not enough. Um, but hopefully that's changing. 
You know, what you just said reminds me of a conversation I once had with a friend. She was basically telling me because she grew up in Bosnia and then came to Switzerland uh, when she was seven or something like that. And she had not seen any people of color, any trans people in Bosnia. And when she arrived in Switzerland, she saw like way more diversity. And I asked her, what is it? Like, I asked her, like, first question I asked was, how does your family feel about people of color or trans people? And they're like, no, I don't know. Not sure they, they're so fond of, of these people. And so I asked her, but what made you be so interested and so open and so careful and benevolent with these people? What drew you to them? And she took a break for five seconds. And I think she gave the most interesting answer I've ever had. She just said, beauty. And that says a lot about how you can approach things. Because I feel like diversity is beautiful. We always hear that. But once you really feel it, instead of just thinking about it, you really start to enjoy diversity. And this goes back to what I was saying, that I like my life to be emergent, to be creative, to to be less linear than what it could be just because I feel like there's beauty in the unexpected beauty in the new and the different because um, that opens the way to new adventures, new experiences, new events, etc. Most of the reactions that I would see regarding diversity would either be a neutral one. So no interest in diversity or worst case, disgust, fear, and violence against diversity. And I don't know if the people who are like sexist, homophobic, racist, um, etc., just don't see the beauty in the diversity or feel that diversity is a danger. I don't know. It's, it's something that I will never... I think it's the question, one of the questions that I would really like an answer to. But since I cannot put myself in their shoes, then it's very difficult for me to know like what it is that triggers such negative reaction to diversity instead of being interested in that and being drawn to that. Um, I don't know that this really bugs me. I don't, I think I don't understand. And probably yet again, there are different kinds of people and some are more prone to accepting diversity and some are less. Um, so I don't know, that could be one part of it. My reaction to that is that that goes deep for people, right? That goes deep in terms of feelings of self-judgment, upbringing, shame, fear, being told off, finding themselves in an uncomfortable feeling that they don't want to deal with, that want to relive. Yeah, having to turn potentially their own world upside down to, to make even a thought possible. Because I very often thought that it's really, it might be about yeah, your education, upbringing, and that shapes how you react to diversity. But then when I think of my coming out as gay to my family, some of like most of the family reacted very badly, but some of them, which had the same education, same environment, same genes, same everything, were just like totally okay with it and even happy for me that I was gay and I cannot really tell what sets them apart so that's because they lived in the same environments they've seen the same things the same tv shows they've seen the same people on the streets 
And this was when I started thinking probably some people are just, I don't know, neuro, what we call neuro atypical. So like way more complex way of thinking. So diversity is not a threat to your brain when you're neuro atypical. It's something that feeds your brain actually. So this is why you're looking for it all the time and craving for it. Whereas like other people who are more neurotypical, they might have like, I don't know, some more linear needs, things to be very predictable, to only hang out with people who look alike because it might otherwise be a danger. I don't know. But it really had me thinking about what is, what can be socially formed and what is just inherent to, to the person, like to your personality and brains. But to be completely honest, that's such a scary question and scary inquiry that I decided not to go into that because I could have easily started reading things like studies and in neurosciences, et cetera. But I think that's a very scary bit. So maybe that's a conversation we can have another time. <laughs> mm -hmm, exactly. <laughs> Tell me, what's the worst conversation you've ever had? There are two types of conversations I really don't like. One is when people are manipulating others or are distorting reality. Um, and the others is political debates. Um, so regarding political debates, what I really don't like is this way we have of talking about ideas and opinions. Like I say an argument, you come up with a counter argument and then we decide who wins. It's so binary. It's, it's really a way of talking that I really hate and that I, I tend to withdraw myself from. And I have no idea how this should be, like how we can talk about things, how we can debate ideas. But yeah, I don't know. Personally, I don't like them. And very often what's one thing that really, really uh, bugs me is how can some people have an opinion that would change other people's lives to a great extent? Uh, here in Switzerland, we had polls about, haven't had yet about gay marriage, but about like um, gay marriage. But I feel like it's crazy that we give like everyone the right to vote about something that would, that they, like that, that wouldn't matter to them. But we are obliged as people to have an opinion about everything. We should be opinionated and like, say if this thing is right or wrong. And probably that has a lot to do with religion um, about this good versus wrong binary. So yeah, and I think that the bad thing about ideas and opinions and political debates is, I don't know how it is in the UK, but political debates in Switzerland are devoid of any emotion. It's It's crazy how... We don't talk about experiences. People don't try to understand what the, what other people are experiencing, how they could be helped. Um, it's just a matter of like mental constructions, concepts, or no, this is the way I should think, I think society should think or behave. And that's so far from reality that it's a bit scary to me. Is it because it forces, it forces a position to take a position? And, and, and it therefore it's not, it doesn't allow for greater discussion. It doesn't allow for some creativity. It doesn't allow for more exploration. It's purely a decision that needs to be made and we need an answer. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's what's irritating. Solution comes first, which 
is crazy to me. But and it's also, yeah, as you said, like you have to say which side you're on. Like if I don't know if you're like for or against gay marriage, whereas to me, the conversation would more be like, what is it that keeps gay marriage from being a real thing? Even though I don't want to get married, I still would support that. And it's really a discussion about like, okay, this is my way of thinking. I have a very traditional way of thinking and I think gay marriage should not be a thing. But I don't understand like what it is that changes why this should matter to people who are not gay, actually. What is it that gives other people the power to decide for, for others, even though that's a topic there really has nothing to do with them. And it's giving this amazing power to people without teaching them how to think and it's a big responsibility somehow. Like we're told like, yeah, you, you are a citizen, so you need to have a p political opinions. You need to decide how this society should be. And then again, when I think of how most of the people are um, like robots or playing a role that they're forced into, it's crazy how we're giving that power to people who are not self-reflexive, who usually don't think about others, who are just reacting to their immediate environment. And then when it comes to sharing your opinion or forming an opinion about a group of people that you are never with or that you never have to deal with. It's crazy that we allow that to happen and that we even demand that the person has an opinion. Um, it's just plain crazy to me. Like if you don't know any person, if you have never experienced that, or if you don't know the impact of like what a law could have on on people's lives, if you've never experienced any of that, then it's completely useless to me. Like very often I don't vote because I don't feel like I should have a say in that. Like if it's something that I'm totally not related to, then I would just simply not vote. And even though I have an opinion, I would just like not make the decision about it. Is that, there's a concept here that I'm trying to work out. Is it by saying that um, I don't have an opinion is, is on some level equivalent to endorsing something that, that maybe is a threat to um, my family, my community, or puts me at odds with my friends? Hmm. But in both cases, what would be the issue if we take the example of gay marriage, let's say? There's one thing I saw on Instagram the other day. Apparently it was like a debate, a political debate on the Democratic side in the US. And basically someone from the audience was asking her, okay, imagine I'm a very traditional religious person and I come to you and tell you that I think a man should marry a woman. And her answer was, well, I'll assume that you're a man then just marry a woman. That's it. And I really think that it, her answer sounded so absurd, but it's the question that was so absurd. Like, why would you choose? Why would you tell other people who they should be married with, who they should sleep with? It's crazy. If you want to sleep with a woman, if you want to spend your life with a woman, with a woman then do it. I don't know why you need to tell other people how they should behave, because that's not a threat to your marriage. That's not a threat to your family. Um, not a threat to your community. You can still do the things that you were doing, right? But just as you've done so far and live with that. And I really don't understand the, the mental processes that lead you to thinking, okay, this is bad. No, this is a bad thing. 
Like it doesn't impact my life at all, but I should destroy that. It's, and I think it's the same kind of thing that I feel when I'm walking on the streets with like some outfits and I get aggressed or harassed. It's instead of just like not looking at me, I don't understand why some people have this need to destroy me or to be violent with me. And the level of entitlement there is just amazing. It's crazy how people feel that their reality, the way they see life through their eyes and brains is the only possible one. I'm wondering whether your flamboyance in the way that you dress in in your appearance creates a dilemma within other people. And that's, that's what's bubbling up is... I don't know how to respond to the way you look. You're making me confront some feelings that I I don't make me feel comfortable. I don't know what to do with. And by putting me in that uncomfortable position, uh, my reaction is to be negative towards you. That could be it. But then the question would be, why be negative about it? That's That's the thing I don't understand. And... I don't know. Very often I like to analyze people on the streets and for things as simple as, I don't know, someone walking with an umbrella in the summer or guys skateboarding and making noise, like a lot of noise in a street. The, like, I'm amazed at how people would immediately turn their head and like be absorbed by those people and would look and stare at and gaze at for seconds and seconds and seconds where I would just like look at what is happening, acknowledge that and just continue like move on with my life. But it's probably really, as you say, like this, how you react to to a surprise to something that's um, new, probably in the end, how you react to novelty and how you approach that. But then what makes it be a violent reaction, what makes it be a neutral reaction, what makes it be a, a positive, interesting reaction. I have no idea. Going, yeah, probably going back to how we're set and that there probably as a species, we need to have different kind of people. So people who respond to danger, those who are attracted to new things, etc. So pr- we probably need a mix for our species to move on and to evolve. But I think now we're we have brains, we have languages, we have channels to communicate. So, and we realize that we need to cooperate more than we need to be aggressive towards each other. Then I don't understand why we are not there yet and why it is still so difficult for some people to, um, to embrace diversity, novelty. I've talked quite a few times to people who were marching in 1968 in, in France. And what they would say is that it hasn't changed. Like we are still asking for the same things, but that the way society feels about it is still the same. They don't feel like there was a huge, um, there's a huge difference now with that we're more free or that we're more tolerant of each other. And so I'm like, what does it take? Like, or can we even as a society, like, take care of each other, be benevolent with each other? Or is that simply not possible? For those of us that don't know what that march was, can you tell us? Huh. I feel like all the people who are into history will kill me for what I'm saying. Uh, it was in France. It was students, mainly female students. It was like a big 
demonstration that lasted for, I think, weeks, if I remember. Um, and it was, they had like a lot of uh, claims, but most of them were about having women being able to dispose of their bodies, to do what they wanted with their bodies. It was a an anti-patriarchal movement, which is not that different from what it is today. So it was like, yeah, a feminist call, let's say. And the funny thing is that it was a few months ago. I can't remember when. It was in June here in Switzerland. Uh, we had a feminist march all over the country. So people marching in every city. And it really felt like nothing had changed in 50 years. Um, and that people were still asking for the same things. Now I think the what is different is that we talk more about economic and social uh, realities for people who are not cis men, let's say. So women and, and um, trans and non-binary people. So any minority, how they're treated economically, which was less put forward, I feel, in 1968 in, in France. So that's the only thing I feel that has changed. But otherwise, we still want the same thing. We're still fighting for the same thing, still requesting the same thing. And also, I feel like with the festivals that we're doing, we're just like the babies of Woodstock still asking, yeah, still wanting the, the same kind of hippie vibe, like let's all love each other. And it's crazy how we still need to do that. Like we keep talking about Woodstock and a lot of people were there and that didn't do anything. We're still fighting for the same things. So I feel like we've gone through a period of sleepiness in between. And it's in recent years that we've become more involved in finding our voices. It could be, yeah. Because I see a lot of, even in the academic world, I think that has, um, that influences the public debate a lot. But all these identity politics um, that are quite strong now um, in the US and Europe, more in the US, let's say. I feel like we've come to a time where we we feel that we are a critical mass to say that we do not want a society that is designed for white cisgendered men. Um, and we feel more comfortable stating that opinion, probably because the economy is not as good as it was from the 70s, like from the 60s to the 80s, that a lot of people are left behind um, and that inequalities are rising. So I feel like there are a lot of parameters that make people be vocal um, and also seeing a lot of people being vocal and questioning the place that they can have and that they should have in society are completely different. See, I'm really, really happy about it. But then what will we do? I feel like the institutions we've designed are so hard to change. Institutional change is so difficult to, to manage. And still people who are in power are mostly cisgendered white men, which is not a bad thing in itself, but it is when you design institutions only for yourself. So yeah, it's good that we talk about these things, that we tell that these things matter, that we march, that we um, share our opinions on on social media. But then I think what is really irritating for me is how much we've talked about it, how much knowledge we've created about identity politics and how minorities should be treated. That that is not used any like to the extent that I would want it to be used. Like things are changing way. The 
pace of how things change is way slower than what I would expect. But hmm. is that something that you feel is a calling for you is it getting into politics and, and representing and opening up some dialogues? Not in politics per se, because yeah, I don't like how politics, like at least in your Western societies, how the political institutions are designed through political parties who should like fight against each other, etc. What What I will do and what I am doing is creating institutions like the festivals I work for or collaborating and elaborating others to say, I think to send a message to be like, okay, we're a critical mass of people who think differently. We're not represented in most political institutions, but here it is. Like we have a voice. You can hear our voice in newspapers and in interviews on the radio, on TV. And I just want to show the diversity and the need for diversity and how valid um, that diversity is. But then I don't think I have the, I don't know, the skills and the motivation to really be into politics because I don't know, it's not the way it is right now. Not the way it is right now. I feel like we should, the way I would really see a political conversation would be, okay, here's a problem. Someone raised the problem. Uh, what can we do about it? Let's try to understand the problem a bit better, like what it is that is requested or that is problematic. And then all collaboratively um, try to find different solutions and try to come up with different ideas and see which is the one that best addresses the issue. But we don't do that because of lobbies, because of time, because uh, yeah, people just don't have enough access to that kind of information. Politicians usually don't meet with people who are directly affected by the laws they are, are trying to, to, to force or counter. So I definitely do not want to be part of that part of society. It's, I know that I would not fit in for sure. And I wouldn't want to use my energy in doing something that I wouldn't be good at. So I think designing institutions and being vocal about diversity um, is the thing that I want to do, that I am doing. And I think it's the best thing that I can do so far, just to spread the message and and hope that someone will pick it up and do something about it. You're giving people a voice, um, but through celebration and and understanding rather than debate. I hope so. <laughs> That's what I'd like to think. But I should probably be more reflexive about that. It's very, very difficult to me to know if my voice is valid, if my advocating for diversity is valid, if what I say is interesting to others, or if people don't feel like I'm misrepresenting them or trying to use some minorities as something that is interesting to talk about just because it's trendy now. It's very difficult. Yeah, I don't know what my stance is there, but I'm going to talk as long as I have a platform. Absolutely. And you don't think people would be vocal in telling you if they thought you were misrepresenting? Mm, I hope so. Yeah. Right. I hope they would. I would always tell people if they're misrepresenting other people, uh, especially when that concerns me. Right. Lately, I've had a, a big argument with someone who was uh, talking about non-binary people. And I could definitely see in what he wrote that 
he had never talked to a non-binary person. So I told him that that should not be his, yeah, that he should not cover that and just basically let non-binary people speak for themselves. So that's, I hope I'm not in his position because I don't know, I wouldn't want to steal a platform from someone who is way more concerned by a certain topic than I am, but... Well, from what I know about you, Hasby, I think um, you'd be generous enough to share that platform. Yes, I think so. That's very sweet of you. Uh, Tell me, um, we've explored so many aspects um, of having conversations, um, especially around diversity and gender. And you've shared your story as intimately as you can in this conversation. So when you're in stressful situations, where you know that you have to lead the conversation with people that you don't know very well. What is it that you do? Well, this might sound contradictory, but what I usually do is I try to think of my past and situations I've had to lead the conversation and in which I did well. And most of the time that would be when I would picture myself as this super expressive, expensive, flamboyant, uh, stereotypical gay queen, let's say. In those moments, I would very easily lead the conversation, be super talkative, smiling all the time, telling jokes, trying to put people at ease. But And when I don't do that and I have to lead a conversation, it's a complete disaster because I don't have, I don't set my energy in a way that m- makes me feel confident, talkative, that makes me feel extroverted, let's say. So to me, what's worked is that in some situations, I try to think of the past personas, let's say I've had or figures I've had, um, and really try to impersonate that and tell myself, I am flamboyant now because I have to lead this conversation and I'm going to do it well. And that really helps. I think it's lovely. You're basically getting into character. And, um, and once you're in that space, you can tap into the more creative you, the more fun side of you. Exactly. Yeah. And that's contradictory because I hate people who play a role they don't own or like. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, you, here. Is it not part of that, that flamboyant gay queen is part of your personality, is it not? It is one part, but I still feel like it's a role, you know, it's not completely me because if I had to have a conversation and lead a conversation, being completely me, I think I would just let people talk and not talk at all. So, but I need to force myself sometimes. So probably taking those roles that are not completely me can help. But we all need, we all need to um, steal ourselves sometimes into and, and find ways of overcoming, you know, a situation that we're not especially looking forward to or a bit fearful of. Mm-hmm. We should. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we need some contradictions, I think so, and do that. But I admire some people, the way they talk and how good they are at that. And very often I'm like, "Mm, I'm going to be like you tomorrow when I have that situation. Uh, (laughs) And it feels fun somehow, but it also feels weird at the same time because I'm looking at myself being that role and I'm like, whoa, you're nailing it. But whoa, this is so not you. Like, how can you do that? Like, it's crazy the amount of complexity that creates in my brain. But if you're good at impersonating other people, try it. It's super fun. I wanted to ask you one last question, which is 
what would you like, what's the main message you want to leave with people today? I think to just be humans whenever we interact and whatever we do, because that's what we are. We are humans um, after all. And to try probably to question and distance ourselves from the social conventions and the social roles that we are expected to play and just have conversations that are really genuine, intimate, interesting, human, and try to leave all the negative aspects of conversations aside. Like, I don't know, when conversations have high stakes, there are some power dynamics in there. Or the worst thing to me is stereotypes. I don't know, sexist conversations or mansplaining, etc. And I think we should all leave those aside and just be human and try to connect with each other because I think that's what's missing the most nowadays. We are in Western countries pretty well off, but what is really missing is that this spiritual connection between people, I feel. And that goes, that happens a lot through conversations or mainly through conversations. So if you feel lonely, if you feel like your life is not socially good or satisfying, then just be human, try it. It will work. It will definitely work. It works for me all the time. And I don't feel like I'm a special person who deserves like love, etc. So it's really anyone can reach it, I feel. And regarding that, when we are humans, I feel that we should all be aware of the stigmas and the minorities that other people are part of. Just try to put yourself yourself in their shoes and uh, imagine what a disabled person, what a conversation with a disabled to a, would be to a disabled person, what social media would be, or what would that represent, etc. And try to understand all these stigmas that people go, uh, that people have and try to liberate the person you're talking with, to liberate them from that and to just have a very safe, non-judgmental space and talk about your experiences. Well, Hasby, it's been really lovely as ever um, talking to you. So thank you for making the time. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Better Conversations with me, Siham Cyrene. And if you did, leaving me a lovely review and rating on Apple Podcast will help me reach more listeners who want to have better conversations at work and in their private lives. You can check out show notes at betterconversations.co forward slash podcast. If you're a regular subscriber, brilliant, lovely to have you back. And if this is your first time, hit subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend. A screenshot and an Instagram story would be going above and beyond. And I would be very grateful. Please tag me at Siham Cyrene, all one word, S-E-H-A-A-M. C-Y-R-E-N-E. And of course, I'll tag you right back. So, what would you like to hear my future guests and I talk about? Or perhaps you would like to be my guest because you've got a strong point of view that you'd like to share or kick about with me on the podcast. Drop me a note, podcast at betterconversations.co. I'd love to hear from you. And if you are a leader who knows you could achieve so much more in your career and be way more influential by having better conversations and stronger relationships, then do consider enrolling for my 12-week online course, Leaders Who Coach. You'll find the curriculum, videos, and a whole load more at 
leaderswhocoach.today. Thanks for listening. I'm Siham Sirene, and this has been a better conversation. Thank you.